Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. So I have an issue in certain contexts uh, when I sleep at night. Um, I, through lots of study and evidence and experience, uh, I get sick when I have a fan blowing on me overnight when I'm sleeping. And I believe that is a thing that just happens. Um, The evidence that I base this on is that uh, my dad, my dad gets sick if there is something blowing on him when he's sleeping at night. Um, so he will, puts like cotton in his ears and wears a hoodie and ties it so like it's this much showing. And um, I also believe this is true because of what I learned from a Korean belief. And that is this, that sleeping with a fan on will kill you. I'm not gonna argue with the Koreans. I think they're accurate in their assumption that you will die if you have a fan on. Um, I also uh, believe this because I, when I wake up in the morning, I believe that I've, if, and I've had a fan on in the room, um, I, I feel sick. I don't feel well. Sherry thinks she doesn't believe in science. So she believes this is wrong. She doesn't believe this is true. Um, she thinks it's made up. Um, I actually did some, inter- uh, I did some research on the internet, which, you know, I mean, how much can you believe that? But I did, and supposedly there's no scientific evidence that this is true. Like, I don't buy it. I, I don't think, I think it's flawed, it's faulty science or whatever. But, but um, they say there's no scientific evidence, apparently this is a, an argument between people, that a fan causes someone to get sick. They claim that there are secondary causes, like maybe a pet is in the room that maybe you have some kind of allergy to, or allergens floating around in the room that's being blown around, or maybe you are already getting sick. I think that's a pretty likely story for them to cover. It's a cover-up of the fan, the fan crisis, I think, that is probably the next big thing coming your way uh, to argue about. Uh, but but it's, it's interesting that, that I feel very strongly about that and, uh, you know, it's, it, kind of, it kind of runs into this cognitive bias we have that's called the backfire effect, which is this thing where, where people, where we tend to encounter evidence that challenges our beliefs, we tend to reject that evidence, and it just serves to strengthen the support of our original stance. Have you ever ran, run into that, where, where you, you have absolute proof of something and you tell someone else and they just like dig in deeper into what they originally originally did. We, we, had this, we had this issue with all three of our kids growing up when they were little. All three of our kids lied about, about brushing their teeth. I don't know if you as a parent have run into that. I don't know. I think this is a kid thing that happens when you're growing up that like you, it's part of the maturing process. But like all three of our kids at some point when they were really little, they would lie about brushing their teeth. Where I would say, hey, did you brush your teeth? And they'd say, yes. Okay, do we need to go to the bathroom and check? I did. And I'd go and feel the toothbrush like literally a minute later and it was dry. The sink's dry, the toothbrush is dry. So you didn't brush your teeth? Yes, I did. No, you didn't. And all, but all three of our kids went through that. I don't understand what, how it works because I feel like, I mean, I, I, may, I guess I, I didn't ask my parents, but maybe, I don't know if I did that when I was little, but, but it's just interesting because, but all the argument and all my evidence giving my kids that they didn't brush their teeth, it just, they just dug in further and deeper. And, and, so, and so, you know, it's, it's this thing that, that we, we, we tend to hold our beliefs, whether they're right or wrong, we hold them very tightly and our brains continually protect our sense of identity. And so arguing someone into another opinion is actually very, very difficult and frankly not very effective, but we tend to use argument as a primary tool of changing people's minds, don't we? And it's not really, it's not really that effective. 
And oftentimes, people are just left at the, the same place they were at the beginning. And I know that maybe a fan at night or brushing our teeth is, is kind of a minor issue, but, but it does lead us to a much bigger thing. And that, is, and that is kind of one of the questions that James asks in this passage today. What causes fights and quarrels and arguments among you? Why do we get into it with each other the way we do? And, and actually, this morning, I want to I wanna hit four questions in the course of, of this study. Number one is, why do we fight? Why do we fight with each other? Number two is, what does friendship with the world have to do with why we fight? Number three, is there any hope in the predicament that we're in? And then number four is, what do I need to do? What do I do in the midst of this? What what do I do about it? And so if you have your Bibles, turn to James chapter 4. And in catching up with kind of reminding us of what, what Kyle talked about last week, Kyle uh, talked about in, in, in chapter three, uh, worldly wisdom and godly wisdom and how God calls us to set aside that worldly or conventional wisdom and, and, and pursue godly wisdom. And, and the way James in chapter three and Kyle mentioned last week that James defines this worldly conventional wisdom that we are exposed to is that it is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Like we can pretty easily accept some of those things like sure, it's earthly, sure, it's unspiritual. But demonic, that's like taking a pretty big step, but that's what scripture says. And so really, when we think about this worldly wisdom, worldly wisdom is based on and is driven by fear, our fears us being afraid of different things. Because you see, we see monsters everywhere, potential monsters hiding out in all kinds of places and behind the faces of all kinds of people. And sometimes those fears are logical and rational, but the way of Jesus does not always follow our concept of logic and reason. Oftentimes, Jesus calls us to things that we would say, that's ridiculous, but he still calls us to those things. In fact, it's interesting because as we think about this idea that worldly wisdom is is grounded and rooted in fear, Jesus, the whole Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament deals with that by by calling us not to be afraid. And I was was, was thinking about this. I I heard a while ago that that, uh, the Bible has 365 times that it says, do not fear. Kind of looked that up, and, and, and it, that may or may, I mean, it depends how you categorize the do not fear statement. Um, but there's some devotions out that are like, one, do not fear for each day of the year, because that's where the Bible, and I'm not sure about that, but here's, here's the thing, is shouldn't one do not fear from Jesus be enough? Like, it doesn't seem like we need 365 of those, but one probably is enough. In fact, like John 14, 27, when when Jesus is talking about the promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit, and he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. That right there should be enough for us to say, okay, this is what Jesus is promising us, this is what he wants for us, and he's giving us the Holy Spirit so we can have peace and be freed from fear. And so we don't need to be working in the, in the ways of worldly wisdom, which is driven by and motivated by fear. You see, fear runs on the jet fuel of scarcity. And, and if you're not familiar with scarcity, that is the framework that I don't have enough or that I am not enough. That's what this idea of scarcity is. It, it is the idea that I don't have or I won't have enough time or enough money or enough knowledge or education, or that I won't have enough safety, that I won't have enough energy, attention, or strength, or just enough to be okay. Think about that for a second. We live in a culture of scarcity. Everyone is driven by this fear that we won't have enough of something that I just listed right there. We seldom feel satisfied with our current status And we spend most of our lives waiting or fighting for a fuller amount to come. Can you relate to that? I mean, is that that often how you feel and can be driven, that you're just wanting that more because you don't have enough? So not only does Jesus say not to fear, 
dealing with fear, but also this idea of scarcity. Jesus says, don't be anxious. In Matthew 6, he begins talking about anxiety by saying, therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life. Scarcity. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And he goes in to talk about how God provides for us. Uh, Paul later in Philippians 4 says this. He says, after he's closing out his letter to the church in Philippi, he says, to the, he says some greetings to believers. And then he says, he says, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He says, don't, don't, don't give in to the scarcity mentality or framework because my God will supply everything from the riches that are found in Christ Jesus. And so it's interesting how, how the Bible very specifically deals with anger and scarcity when our whole lifestyle and culture and civilization is based on that. Our worldly wisdom is based on, on, on leveraging our fear of not having enough. And, and so, so James, and out of those things come arguments and disagreements and fighting and quarrels. So, so James, in, in verse one of chapter four, he says this. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? He says, what causes fights? He says, it's our passions that are at war within us. That every one of us, there is a war going on inside of us that is our passions, our desires to be safe, our desires to be cared for, our desires to be right, our desires to, to be free. All of those things are at war within us and so we fight and quarrel and argue amongst each other. The Jewish philosopher, a guy by the name of Spinoza, who lived a long time ago, said this when he was observing Christians. He says, I have often wondered that persons who make boast of professing the Christian religion, namely love, joy, peace, temperance, and charity to all men, should quarrel with such rancorous animosity and display daily towards one another such bitter hatred that this, rather than the virtues which they profess, is the ready criteria of their faith. And this isn't a modern observation. This is from a long time ago. <laughs> Watching how believers behave in the midst of one another. You see, here's the thing. If we are running according to God's wisdom... Before I say this, let me back up for a second. Let me read that the last verse in chapter three that Kyle ended with last week. It says, and a harvest of righteousness is sown, how? By confronting people and arguing and fighting is sown in peace by those who make peace. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so here's the thing. If we are running according to God's wisdom, the undeniable fruit of that wisdom is peace and order in our lives and in the church. That's not just said in James chapter three, but it's said throughout all over. And in fact, what I just read that Jesus says, he says, peace I leave with you. Jesus calls us to peace, to have. And, and here's the question do the things associated with you characterize peace and order? Or if I had a conversation with you today, or if I looked at your postings on social media, would I think that you are not at peace, but you are in crisis and panic? We tend to lead with crisis and panic, not with peace. Is your inf does your influence promote peace around you? Does your social media present promote peace around you? Does your language you use promote peace around you? And, 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 so, and so he says, what causes these fights and quarrels among you? Well, it's that you're at war with yourself because 
you are struggling with your kingdom in God's kingdom. And we try to make a hybrid kingdom of the things that are important to me and the things that are important to God. And frankly, that will not result in peace. Looking on further, uh, James says in verse two, he says, you desire and you do not have, that's scarcity, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, that's scarcity, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you wrongly, because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. The things that you want rather than the things that God has called you toward. And, and so here's what's interesting. In this, he says, you, you, you want things that you don't get. The question I had was, I wonder if there's a specific thing that James is thinking of or pointing toward that these believers he's writing to want and they don't get. Because there's probably lots of, lots of things that they want and they don't get. But there's a couple clues, I think, in the previous chapter that might inform us. And the first clue is in chapter three, verse one. Travis preached on it a couple weeks ago, and it starts out, and James says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that those who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Sounds like there was a group within the church that James is writing to that they were pursuing leadership positions and wanting greater influence. And one of the things Travis talked about when he preached that passage was be careful that your influence does not exceed your character. How many people should you be able to influence based on the strength of your character? Frankly, it's less than you think <laughs> because your character isn't that strong. And so James warns about becoming teachers. And then in verse 13, which Kyle started with last week, he says, who is wise and understanding among you by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. In other words, there was people in the, in the church who were professing to be wise, but they were leaning on worldly wisdom, which James then talks through. I, I think it's possible that maybe one of the things that these believers were pursuing and not getting and wanting more of was they wanted leadership and authority and influence. They wanted to lead the church. They wanted to be leaders in the community. But what James says to them is that you not, you're not using the right wisdom, nor is your depth of dependence of character based on Jesus. You don't have the character either. See, it's interesting when you think about Christian maturity, Christian maturity isn't about longevity. Like there's lots of people who say things like, well, I've been in the church for this many years, and so I therefore am fill in the blank. But you see, longevity is not the marker of Christian maturity, obedience is. It's obedience. And so that means a person who, who surrenders their life to Christ and obeys once and dies is far more mature than a person who's been in church for 70 years and has not really surrendered their will and their agenda to Jesus. See, our maturity is, is really understood through obedience, not longevity. And, and so really what, what, what James is saying to them is they, they want something, they don't get it, so they murder. They have hatred in their hearts. They, they want something and they don't have enough, so they, they, they covet. And, and he says basically that, that it's, it's their concern about scarcity versus trusting God. And he says when they do ask, when you ask, you ask in the wrong way. You, you ask so that you can benefit so that you can calm your fear, so that you can feel like you're enough rather than that trust in believing that God wants to do something with what he's given you. So they wanna spend it on themselves rather than, than consider God's kingdom, God's will, God's name. And here's the thing, God does give us gifts and he wants us to enjoy them. However, the enjoyment which contributes to nothing but itself is not why God answers prayers. 
If we are just looking to, to God to answer our prayers for our own enjoyment and nothing else, that's not why he answers our prayers. He answers our prayers so that we can enjoy and be part of his plan and his glory. And, and so why do we fight? Well, we fight because there's this massive battle within us. And, and many of us in the church tend to build these hybrid kingdoms of justifying our way and our methods and worldly methods and methodologies. And we combine those with the kingdom and we're a mess. Which brings us to that second question, which, which is what does friendship with the world have to do with it? In verse four, James continues. He says, he responds to their behavior of fighting and quarreling. So we're, we're fighting and quarreling within the church. What would James say to that? He would say, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is, is enemy with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? You see, James responds really harshly to their behavior. He shifts from calling them brothers to adulterers. It's one of the most sternly worded calls to repent anywhere in the New Testament. It's harsh. And so basically what, what he's saying is this. He's saying our obsessive argument over ideologies and methodology convicts us of unfaithfulness to God. And let that sit for a second. Our obsessive arguing over ideologies and methods convicts us of unfaithfulness to God. That's a heavy statement that maybe we need to process a bit. You see, friendship with the world is making nice and making use of the world's ideologies and methods it is imitating the world. And we are really good at that. And we're really good at justifying the use of those things. You see, we, we know this because we've heard this, we've heard this all throughout history about, about when, when nations are at war and, and maybe one, one group is, is using violent and brutal techniques. We, we, we say that we're above them because we won't you know, lower to do, do things the way they do because we don't want to become like them. Because you see, when we use the enemy's tactics, we begin the process of becoming just like the enemy. We don't fight that way. We don't use their methods and tools and ideologies. But that's what friendship with the world is. It's, it's using the world's ideologies and methods and tools to get good things done. And we say, well, we're, we're getting good things done but James says, no, no, friendship with the world is at enmity with God. You are an enemy of God if you're using the world's methods. Like, here's some examples of what that might look like. Friendship with the world within, within a person who's, who's, a, who's a Jesus follower. Galatians 6.10 says this. Paul extols us. He says, he says so then... As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. You maybe heard that verse before. He says, do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, the, 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 the worldly ideology is that we need to take care of and protect ourselves first because no one else will. We need to make sure we care for ourselves. That is, I am my own priority. I am the most important person in my life. And so we would then take that, that calling that, that Paul gives us in Galatians, and we would interpret that in our friendship with the world as saying, you know what? We should first do good to believers if, if I have enough in me, if it's convenient, then if I have anything left, I can love other people too, let alone my enemies. Like I'm not gonna have anything left for them. But you see, that's friendship with the world. And, and so we decide to behave and to treat people that way rather than simply what God has called us to treat people. So the question is this, can you see the image of God 
in the doctor who performs abortions? Can you see the image of God in the LGBTQ community? Can you see the image of God in your ultra-conservative grandfather? Can you see the image of God in your political enemies? Can you see the image of God in rednecks? Can you see the image of God in the woke? Because if you don't see the image of God in them, you're not gonna love them. Because you see, friendship with the world says, you know, we need to protect ourselves from these people, whoever they are. But God says they are made in my image. And God says you are to love them in the same way that I love you. Another thing that I thought recently is maybe an example of friendship with the world to solve problems in the church. There was a thing, I think a week or two ago, that was held here in Modesto as a response to gay pride events. It's called the Straight Pride Day. It was a straight pride event. So to combat a gay pride event, do a straight pride event which sounds like employing the world's methods, which again, James calls demonic friendship. Now, you don't have to agree with me, but you can't really brush that away and not think about it or process it. Because it sounds a lot like what James is describing here. When you think about our social media present in our posts, Probably a simple perusal of, of your wall or your Instagram or your Twitter will reveal that you're running scared and employing worldly friendship methods to fix what's wrong and feel safe. I know this because I don't post things. I stay away from social media. But if I did and I was honest, what's in my heart, I'd be proving the same thing, that I'm scared and that I'm trying to fix things with worldly methods. The question is, does your presence bring peace or does it bring crisis? Does it bring peace or panic? When someone reads something you've posted or hears what you've just said, are they panicking, not sure what to do, or are they at a place of peace in the midst of immense evil intention in the world? Because Jesus says, peace I leave with you, not as the world gives. And James just said that the harvest of righteousness comes through peace by those who are peacemakers. See, and, and probably in some of you, your minds are saying, but you know what, there is a right side. We can't just, we can't just ignore this. There's a right and there's a wrong. Yes, you're, you're right, there is. But part of the problem is that we're convinced as individuals that Jesus sees the world through our lens rather than we see the world through his lens. We believe that Jesus sees things as, well, they're bad, they're good, they're better, they're better, they're better. And Jesus is on that side. Here's what's interesting. In, in the first century when Jesus called his disciples, there was a whole bunch of different groups in Israel. Some of the groups you're probably pretty familiar with, some of the groups maybe you're less familiar with, but there was a group, the Pharisees, which we hear a lot about in the New Testament. They were meticulous about the Old Testament law. They took a literal view of it. They kept clean from civic in involvement. They didn't get involved in politics or, or civic issues. They focused primarily on the temple and the temple laws. Then you had the Essenes, who were really isolationists. They, they actually had communal property with each other, with kind of within the walls of their communities. And, and they made moral vows and they wanted to make sure that they would stay pure from society. So they didn't engage in any of those things. Then you have the Sadducees, which were not just religious, but also political as well. They believed that the law, some of it was authoritative, some of it wasn't, but you kind of had, had, had to, you know, manage your way through the law of the Old Testament. It's not all God's law. They denied the supernatural and they, they believed that civic engagement 
and political power were the agents of change in bringing the kingdom of God to, to fruition. And then you had the, the, the zealots, who are again a political religious group. They believed that rebellion against Rome was the right way to, to bring things into, into focus and balance. They had the mentality that the oppressors must be overthrown to bring the oppressed to the top and move the oppressors to the bottom. And in their context, it was to bring the Jewish people over Rome and the oppressiveness of Rome down and become those who are no longer in charge. Then there's another group called the Sakari, which I thought was an alien race on Star Trek, but apparently, it, I don't know, maybe it's one and the same, but, but a group called the Sakari. And they were, again, a political religious group, very much like the Zealots, except they willingly incorporated violence in their rebellion, even to the point of punishing Jews who would cooperate with Rome. And so all these groups debated each other in the temple courts and markets, declaring their positions as absolute truth. Does that sound at all familiar with the church, with our society? Does that remind you of, of, of what we deal with? And, and, and so what's interesting, thinking about those descriptions, you've got to recognize that, that a Sakari mortal enemy is a Sadducee, Right? Because a Sadducee has jumped into the politics of Rome and works with Rome for their agenda, yet the Sicarii says that, that Rome needs to be overthrown and those Jews who are cooperating with Rome, they need to be dealt with as well. So a Sicarii and a Sadducee, that's not just a fist fight, but that's knives out, right? Think about this for a second. Jesus' disciples... Jesus' disciples that he called to follow him consisted of three zealots, a Sadducee favoring tax collector working for the Roman Empire, six fishermen exploited by Roman taxation, one member of the Sicarii, and a wealthy nobleman linked to the Pharisees. Think about that mix for a second. That was the disciples. That's like our modern day, that's like a modern day church plant. The leadership in a modern day church plant consisting of a few Black Lives Matter protesters, a, a, a blue collar worker who believes Donald Trump was the greatest hope for America, a wealthy Republican who owns an oil refinery down south, and a member of Antifa. That would be the makeup of the disciples. Do you think that there were arguments and even threats made from disciple to disciple in Jesus' group of 12? I mean, we, we read in the New Testament, it talks a little bit about how there was arguments about who's the greatest. But I think <laughs> there's some very real likelihood that when the tax collector disciple and the Sakari disciple learned who each other was, that only Jesus kept them from killing each other. Because that would have been acceptable in the Sakari's world. And I guarantee you that Matthew was, at moments, probably afraid for his life. You see, the very makeup of Jesus' first discipleship group was a purposeful message about the kingdom of God. Jesus was starting a polarization-busting movement that required full surrender in the laying down of passions and rights to Jesus alone. Without, the, without Jesus, the disciples would have killed each other. You see, when a believer behaves in a worldly manner, they demonstrate at that point that their allegiance is to the world rather than to God. And God demands total, unwavering, unreserved allegiance from his people in whom he has placed the Holy Spirit. Again, listen to what, what he says in, in verse five. 
Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? God is fighting jealous about the Holy Spirit that he has placed inside his people. And when his people behave in a way that they have friendship with the world and quarrel and fight among themselves and use worldly ideologies and worldly methods and worldly tools, God is not happy. And it's interesting because, because we think about that and, and we're kind of at a, now at a place where, man, so is God angry? Is God ticked off with us? Here's what's awesome. The very next thing James says at this place where we're about to lose hope, because this brings us to our third question, is there any hope? Look at verse six. But he, God, gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Right after we're at a place where we think that maybe God is so angry that he's gonna turn his back on us or wipe us out, it says, God gives more grace. Basically, he's saying, God gives more grace than my sin. God himself has given what he demands from us. He calls us to love one another, so he gives us grace, more grace than our sin, more grace than our fear, more grace than our hate, more grace than anything else. When you think about it, when you look, the passage that I read as we stepped into the message time, the saints overcame in Revelation 12, not with weapons, but by the blood of the lamb, not by shedding their enemies' blood, but by Jesus shedding his blood for them. Again, we, we see in, in Revelation 12, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ has come for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered how? By the blood of the lamb, not by shedding the blood of their enemies, but by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, their faithfulness and obedience to Christ himself for they loved not their lives even to death. In Revelation 19, there's this climactic battle scene with warrior Jesus, and he's seen with blood-soaked robes. And it's interesting because you'll miss it if you don't, if you're not careful. When we watch movies or hear stories or hear, hear reports of, of gruesome murders, when you, when you hear those stories, at the end of, you know, the person goes into the situation clean and they come out after they've killed with blood spattered on their clothing, right? That's how it works. You get it spattered when you're doing the killing. But you see, this warrior Jesus shows up before the battle with blood-stained robes. What does that mean? That Jesus didn't start out by shedding the blood of his enemies. He started out by sacrificing his own life with his own blood for the many for those very enemies. That's how God does it. The world sheds the blood of their enemies. The world says stuff about their enemies. The world attacks verbally their enemies. But Jesus sheds his own blood for his enemies. In Re Revelation 19, 13, it says, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. The blood is not the blood of the enemy, but his own sacrificial blood. And so if God gives us the grace to meet his claim on the lives of those who are humble, then we must become humble if we expect to enjoy that grace. You see, God says he gives grace to the humble. He gives more grace. There's more grace than you can imagine, but to access that grace, you must pursue humility we must pursue humility. And it is really difficult to get into fights and quarrels about stuff when you are pursuing humility. Proverbs 3.34 says, the Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwellings of the righteous. Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. 1 Peter 5 says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. 
For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that some that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And so is there hope? Absolutely there's hope because God gives more grace. Travis said it earlier. And so here's the last question. What do I do next? What do I do with this? Verse seven. Submit yourself therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. You see, what do I do next? I pursue intimacy with Jesus. If intimacy with Jesus is the goal by far, then humility is the method that gets me there that opens the doorway. So what do we do? He, he basically uh, gives four things, and I'll go through these quick. Submit to God's kingship and obey him alone. Submit to God's kingship and obey him alone. Second, resist employing worldly ideologies and methods, which are the activities of the devil. Resist the devil and the way he does business. Three, love and pursue God's kingdom through the word, through prayer, through fasting, and through giving. You will not find intimacy with Christ without participating genuinely and authentic in those practices. And then finally, face your sin, including your fear, and experience it fully to the point of being broken. Let God break your heart over your sin. And let that be the impetus to humility. Let that push you toward humility. And if we do those things, God will do what you and I have been failing to do all along with compromised methods to no lasting avail. But so often there's fear that when we don't control or fight that we will lose. Listen to the words of the Apostle John in 1 John 4. He says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. They have not experienced the wholeness of love that God offers them. We do not have to fear we do not have to fight and quarrel. We do not have to defend. We do not have to advance. We don't have to do all of these things. We simply have to pursue intimacy with Jesus and faithful obedience to what he calls us to do. You see, right now, I think it's interesting that God divinely set this passage to be talked about today in our church because we are on the precipice of a whole lot of great quarrels and fights and disagreements. Then just a couple days ago, the county announced that we're going back to masking indoors. And I chose to avoid any social media because I didn't wanna look at all of the arguments that will begin again with that. It's not just that, it's, it's all kinds of things. We have lots of things to argue about. And the church has been arguing about lots of things for a long time. The question that, that James gives us is what path will we choose? Humility or pride? Will we allow the battle that's within us to move from there out and will we fight with one another because our opinions are so important and so sure that we know so much and nothing can actually question what, what we believe. See, for some here today, 
We will be more passionate this week to communicate what we think about current events than what we know about Jesus and his kingdom. In fact, some will bind together our concerns with Jesus' kingdom as if they are in sync. We, many of us, are so spiritually blind that we think that we are speaking for Jesus when we are actually speaking for the devil. And we might mean well, but we are locked step in step with friendship with the world because we're using the world's methods. We're using the world's ideologies. Some this morning will say great sermon and then go out and emphasize the wrong things in the wrong ways in person and online. We'll just jump right back into the, 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 the thick of it. And our fears will justify that because we have so, in so many ways, adopted the world's tools and methodology. James says that we need to repent. James says that we need to humble ourselves. And Jesus will lift us up. As I was walking through this this week, I felt pretty convicted. This past summer, as, as we were going through all of the stuff, all of the issues. Remember a couple occasions where I came to church and preaching, I got a little yelly. And some people said, oh, I like it when you yell. Some people had other opinions. Here's the problem. Regardless of the truth of what I said, was using the world's methods and tools to get what I want. Because what do you do when people have disappointed you or are not listening or, or, you're, or you're frustrated with how they're behaving? You yell at them. You carry a big stick. That's how you do it. And I realized recently and kind of was able to put my finger on what was going on inside of me, and it's called a failure of heart. It's when we may be able to keep going in pursuing Jesus, but have stopped doing it with love and compassion, and as a result, I have Christian faithfulness without Christian love, which Paul says is ultimately noise. We can say the right things, but without love. And we're combining friendship with the world with the cross of Christ. Failure of heart is the emotional cutoff that occurs when a person's discouragement leaves them to psychologically abandon their, the people that they're called to serve. So I realized that that's what I had been doing is I'll still lead, but I don't care what you do because I can't handle it. See, I don't deserve to lead Crosspoint. But God has never called a deserving person to serve him because no one deserves no one deserves to be called to lead with Jesus. None of us do. None of us deserve that. Jesus has never called a person who deserves it. But he still calls us. And he calls us to take up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow him. This week I've been dreading the decisions and conversations that inevitably will come about masks, about Afghanistan, about whose fault fires are, 
in the option, the choice we have ahead of us is do you choose humility, surrender, and love, or do you choose pride, control, and fear? That's really what's going on. God offers more grace. I'm so thankful that God gives more grace. I'm gonna spend just a couple minutes right now and give you an opportunity just in the quietness as we wrap up this morning to seek Jesus in repentance. Because the reality is this. God says very clearly that the way of pride and control and fear is at odds with Jesus himself. And you know what the symptom of that is? Quarrel and fighting among us. And so it seems to be obvious that there's a necessity for us to repent and confess and pursue humility and surrender and love. And so right now, as Travis kind of plays, it's an opportunity for you to ask the Holy Spirit, how, how am I friends with the world? How am I acting? How am I behaving? How am I putting my own kingdom and agenda out front? And what do I need to do next? Some of us today will walk out of here with a renewed passion to pursue humility. And some of us will walk out of here today spiritually blind, thinking that we're just right and we've always been right. Don't be an enemy of Jesus today. Take the next few minutes to, to seek the Holy Spirit. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint.